Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. Now, Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, a retired traffic homicide detective from South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. Hello, all. Before we begin, I have to tell you that, you know how you gave that driving advice at the end of episode 66 the other day? Yes. Mm -hmm. That saved my life the other day. Okay. I've been waiting to tell you this till we were recording. Okay. Which tip? I will. I'm going to tell you, but just so everybody knows, follow those tips because they work. (laughs) It was the wait a few seconds after the light turns green. Red light. Mm Mm-hmm. You know that hotel that you and mom always stay in, the Vinland? Yes. Yep. It was at that intersection. Okay. And I was waiting. I was driving. I lit a school and I was waiting. You know, the light turned green. I waited a few seconds. Sure enough, somebody came flying through the intersection, ran the red. Yep. And I was like, damn, had I moved forward, they would have T-boned me. They would have hit you. Yeah. Some of, some of my worst cases, or majority of the cases I worked were intersections because of that, like, you know, whether they were drunk or not drunk, but people running red lights as like... Well, this was at 8 a.m., so I'm hoping that the guy wasn't drunk, but... No, but I'm just saying, but, like, it's, you know, those intersection ones where it's like, whatever, count to three, count to two, just look both ways again. You know, you'll see it coming if you're paying attention, you know, like... Everybody out there, follow that advice. There you go. So, this week, we're actually going to be covering a cult. Oh. So, this case was suggested by McLean. So, hi, McLean, you have a really cool name. The cult is known as the LeBaron family or the Church of the Firstborn. Wow. Okay. Which, so this church actually ends up having a, kind of a lot of names. Okay. So we're just going to kind of refer to it as the LeBaron family as like a whole. Okay. They've actually been called the, the Manson family of Mormonism. Oh, shit. Okay. I'm assuming you've never heard of heard of this family. I have not. I've no, I was, trying to, I was trying to think when you said LeBaron, I was like, Baron, I've heard that. Oh, it's a car name. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. As far as I know, they're not affiliated with uh, that. Right. Chrysler. Chrysler LeBaron. But this one is definitely can't make this shit up material. And I'm going to okay. tell you, as soon as I started my research, I can't believe that n- more people don't know about this. It's insane. Wow. Okay. So I got the majority of my information for this case from a really great book. It was written by Sally Denton, and it's called The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. And also from a hell of a lot of articles. So I'm going to link all those in the show notes. There's a lot of them. But if you guys want to go on and check it out and get some more information, because I'm just going to say this case goes on for almost 100 years. Oh, shit. Okay. So uh, there was a lot of information that I was unable to include just for timing's sake. And is it still a current, like a cult that's still? Well, you're just going to have to wait and see. Oh, snap. All right. But I highly recommend the book. It's actually a really interesting book. And actually, the author herself grew up in fundamental Mormonism. From my understanding, she's no longer Mormon. But she obviously has a very good background to kind of write this story. Right. Okay. Before our story begins, we have to have kind of a minor knowledge of the history of the Mormon Church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as they're also known. Specifically, we need to kind of understand how polygamy plays into that. Okay. 
So this is just going to be a very kind of minor introduction into this. So I'm aware that there's a lot more that goes into it, but I'm just kind of trying to give everyone a general overview. Okay. So according to Mormon doctrine, they believe that Joseph Smith, which he's the man who began their church in 1883, they believe that he was a prophet of God and received direct revelations from God. So essentially he spoke to God. Okay. And then he was directed by God to pass on the information he was given to his followers. Okay. In the early 1830s, shortly after forming the church, Joseph asked God why many of the characters within the Old Testament of the Bible had multiple wives. According to Joseph, he then received a revelation from God. This revelation eventually became known as Section 132 of the Church's Doctrines and Covenants. The first part of the revelation speaks of marriage as a whole and states that marriage is, quote, a celestial covenant between a man and a woman, meaning that marriage should last for all of life and all of afterlife as well. Wow, okay. It also stated that it was only through marriage that men would, quote, become gods. So they believe that if you married and you were bountiful in having children, that you become a god in, in the afterlife. The second part of the revelation spoke of Old Testament men such as David and Abraham who were said to have multiple wives and concubines. Joseph Smith claimed taking more than one wife was godly as long as it was ordained by God and the marriage was performed and blessed within their church. It also stated that if a woman were to lay with another man, she was to be labeled an adulteress and should, quote, be destroyed. So, surprise, surprise, men can do it, but no, no, the women cannot. That's historically how it goes. However, in 1854, the Republican Party within the United States had been made aware of Mormonism and their polygamy doctrine, and they were not having it. So, in 1862, Congress passed the Morrill Act. This law was a direct attack on the Mormon Church as it illegalized plural marriage, also disincorporated the church and limited their ability to own and retain property. Okay. However, at the time, the Civil War was occurring, and as a result, the laws against polygamy weren't very strictly enforced. Right. Because, you know, they were worried about war and shit. Right. But following the war, in 1882, Congress began to crack down on polygamy. They passed the Edmonds Act, which closed up some loopholes within the Morrill Act, it declared that polygamy was a federal offense, and those who were found guilty would face up to five years in prison and a hefty fine of $500. So in today's money, that would be equivalent to roughly $14,000. Wow, okay. So it was a big fine back then. Convicted polygamists were also unable to vote, hold political office, or participate as a jury member within court trials. Due to all of these political pressures, the church suddenly had a change of heart regarding polygamy. Okay. So now they're backtracking. Surprise, surprise. By 1890, a man named Wilford Woodruff had become president of the church because obviously by this point, Joseph Smith had died. And he released a statement to the press, which became known as the Manifesto, which stated in part, quote, I publicly declare that my advice to the Latter-day Saints is to refrain from contracting any marriages forbidden by the law of the land. So before they said God wants polygamy, God wants you to have multiple wives. Now they're like, actually, no, we're changing that. Don't do it. Yeah, see, that's... Yeah, it's, it's clearly uh, hypocritical. Yeah, I mean, once again, it's like 
if that's supposedly truly, if you believe that he's, you know, descendant of God or in communication with God, then his word should be the be all end all. Right. But no, federal government's going to say you can't do it. So we're just going to go ahead and change that. However, despite this advice, many Mormons still practiced polygamy and many fled to Mexico where they could live their polygamous lifestyles freely. By 1910, the church really began to crack down on its members who were still practicing and promoting polygamy. It was at this time the church finally announced that any member who continued to practice polygamy would be excommunicated from the church. This resulted in many various polygamist factions of the church breaking off and forming their own Mormon-based churches, which continued to allow and encourage polygamy. Oh, okay. It started off as one big major church, but now you have kind of fundamentalist groups breaking out, basically saying what we were just saying. No, we believe, according to God, that this is fundamentally what he wants. So we're right. going to form our, our own Mormon church now that continues that. Right. See, and I, and I get that. Like, uh, you know, that's... So do I. You know? Because these members who were breaking off and forming their own churches, they believed that the leaders of the church were going against the original doctrine set by God and their founding prophet, Joseph Smith. Right. They have a point. This brings us to the LeBaron family, who okay. at this time were high-ranking members of the Mormon church. Okay. And this is what we're talking, 1910, you said? Or somewhere around then? Yeah, it's roughly 1910, 1920. Okay. All right. So early 1900s. We'll talk more about it, but the LeBaron family has been around since the founding of Mormonism. Right, okay. They knew and were very close with Joseph Smith, the first prophet to ever okay. exist in their belief. Right, okay. So the father and patriarchal head of the family was a man by the name of Alma Dare LeBaron, senior, because there becomes an Alma Jr. too. So Alma had two wives and at this time had five sons by the names of Alma Jr., Benjamin, Ervil, Ross, and Joel. And he also had three daughters. From a young age, Alma began teaching his sons that their family were a part of a secret prophecy, which had been handed down by Joseph Smith himself, but was kept secret from the rest of Mormondom. Okay. So this is a little bit confusing if you're not familiar with kind of Mormon history and doctrine, so just bear with me. Okay. While the original Mormon prophet Joseph Smith was still alive and leading the original Mormon church, his right-hand man was a man named Benjamin Johnson, who was also a part of Joseph Smith's original council. So they're best buddies. Okay. Benjamin also happened to be Alma LeBaron's grandfather. Benjamin took close care of Joseph Smith and even performed enemas on him. Hello? <laughs> Wowza. You got to be pretty good friends to form uh, enemas on each other. I think I just threw up in the back of my throat a little bit. <laughs> he was so close to Joseph Smith that Joseph even named Benjamin his power of attorney in 1843. Wow, okay. So these two super close besties. Right. Joseph also had married two of Benjamin's sisters. So the two also were technically brothers-in-law. Okay. However, after marrying two of Benjamin's sisters, Joseph requested to marry another of Benjamin's sisters, a 16-year-old named Esther. However, Benjamin told his good friend Joseph that unfortunately, Esther could not marry him as she was already engaged to a man named David T. LeBaron. 
Okay. So LeBaron is also an ancestor of none other than Alma LeBaron. Okay. However, surprisingly, this didn't seem to upset Joseph Smith, as he reportedly told his friend Benjamin, quote, well, let them marry. It will all come out right. So all of this was recorded as fact, everything I just told you. Okay. The Mormon church itself knew about all this. Okay. The next part, Alma claims to be true, but it was never documented in any official capacity. Okay. According to Alma LeBaron, this was when Joseph Smith had a prophecy, and he secretly told Benjamin that David LeBaron and Esther's children would inherit the head prophet position within the church following Joseph Smith's death. Okay. He also secretly decreed that Benjamin, which is Alma LeBaron's grandfather, would now be adopted by Joseph, making Benjamin Joseph's true firstborn son. According to Alma LeBaron, this meant that he and all of his male descendants were all meant to be the true leaders of the Mormon church. Okay, convenient. So, a typical startup to a cult. Yep. Alma told his sons that when he was 18 years old, his grandfather Benjamin carried out Joseph Smith's secret plan and had informed Alma, quote, When I die, my mantle will fall upon you, even as the mantle of Elijah fell upon Elisha, when he ascended to heaven in a chariot of fire. Wow, all right. In 1924, Alma decided to move his family to northern Mexico, where he would be free to practice polygamy without the fear of being prosecuted by the U.S. government. Because I guess Mexico was like, sure, we don't care, come on. They still have a big uh, big Mormon population down there. Yeah, so actually, um, I have it written down for later in here, but I found this interesting. Obviously, the U.S. has the biggest Mormon population. Outside mm-hmm. of the U.S., the next biggest population is in Mexico. Mexico, yeah. And not not all of them are polygamists down there. Some of them no. aren't. But yeah, correct, right. They just, the religion's down there. While there in Mexico, Alma aligned himself with a sect of Mormons known as fundamentalist Mormons, who still believed that polygamy was the only way to live a godly life and eventually make it to heaven. However, 20 years later, in June of 1944, all five of Alma's sons were officially excommunicated from the main Mormon church for all of these radical claims. Okay. Along with the fact that they still practiced and promoted polygamy. Gotcha. Okay. So at this point, the LeBaron family officially began following the fundamentalist Mormons before they were kind of involved in their church, but not in an official Just aligned with them, right? Gotcha. Okay. So now, since they got kicked out of the main Mormon church, they're like, fuck it, we're going with the fundamentalists. Gotcha. Okay. The fundamentalist Mormons were led by a man whose name was Joseph White Muser. Okay. On May 8th, 1950, Ross LeBaron, Alma's son, confessed his belief that his father was the true Mormon prophet while driving with his father. Because remember, his whole life he's been telling him, oh, we're the real prophets, we're the real prophets. So now, as he's getting older, he's like, yeah, I really believe that. He acknowledges it to him. Right. He told him, according to him, he believed his dad to be, quote, the head patriarch of Earth. Quite a title. What a title. Yeah. Alma then ordained that Ross should become his heir, who would become Earth's true prophet once he died. He reportedly told Ross, quote, And now I confer upon you all keys, rights, and authority of the patriarchal role of the priesthood. Mm-hmm. 
A year later, on April 3, 1951, Ross went to the head of the Fundamentalist Mormon Church, Joseph Muser, to confess his belief that he was the rightful heir to the prophethood of Earth. At this time, Joseph Muser was in poor health and was dying. So this is all according to Ross. Once again, no no official document. Okay. According to Ross, when he entered Joseph Muser's room, he said to Ross, quote, You have had a revelation. Ross then answered, Yes, and I have come to honor you as Abraham honored Melchizedek. Melchizedek? Okay, if you say so. At this point, Ross supposedly explained to Joseph Muser his belief that he was the patriarchal heir of the earth. So he's, even though Joseph Muser is the prophet of his own church, the head of it, he's mm-hmm. basically telling him, no, 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 you're not the real prophet. I am. I am. Okay. So according to him, Joseph Muser wasn't upset about this. He just said, you know what? I confirm this. Okay. So with this, Ross believed himself to be the true heir of Mormondom. However, surprisingly, when Alma died later that year, he did not leave the leadership of his Mexican compound to Ross, but instead declared that his brother Joel take the role as the lead priesthood holder. So even though he'd promised Ross, hey, you're going to take over, when the mm-hmm. time came, he was like, no, nah, no, nah, it's Joel. Yeah, I'm leaving it to my brother. No, Joel's his son, another one of his sons. I mean, oh, his son, his son, that's right. Yeah. Four years later, on September 21st, 1955, Joel, along with Ross and their brother Florin, left Mexico and traveled to Salt Lake City, Utah, where they organized a church which they named the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times. Okay. So basically, now they've separated themselves from the fundamentalist church, and now they're forming their own church. Joel took the head position as the church's first president, Ross became the head patriarch, and Florin became the church's first counselor. Following this, the brothers returned to their compound in Mexico, known as Colonia Liberan. During the early years of the church, Joel and his brother Ervil grew especially close, and he quickly became Joel's right-hand man. So now Joel's in charge, and his brother Ervil's kind of second in command. Gotcha. In the years that followed, many wives were married off to the brothers, and reports of abuse and child brides began circulating around the church. Interestingly, in the years that followed the church's inception, many other Mormon churches sprang up in Mexico, and like I said, today Mexico has the largest populations of Mormons outside of the U.S. However, the majority of these churches, unlike LeBaron's church, are not polygamist. Okay. According to Sally Denton, a former Mormon who wrote the book that I was talking about at the beginning... Right. So once again, it's called The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land, if anyone wants to read it. So she says, quote, The true believers believe they are creating the kingdom of God on earth, and the goal is to spread the seed of man, and for the women, it's to have as many children as possible. And in the LeBaron colony, they began having babies as early as 13 years old. Ugh. Horrible. Unreal. In addition to child sex abuse, the LeBaron colony also promoted white nationalism, believing the white race to be the only true children of God. Wow. Okay. So bad all around. Wow. Okay. They're covering their bases. Yeah. They just want to be shitty in every way possible. Yeah. Jeez. The church consisted of about 30 different families who lived in both Utah and Los Molinos, a community located on the Baja California Peninsula in Mexico. 
So, you know, if you're looking at Mexico, that little peninsula that comes out, that's where they are. Yeah, right. Okay. By the 1960s, the relationship between Ervil and Joel had grown contentious, and it was clear that Ervil was tired of taking a back seat to his brother Joel. Okay. Eventually, their relationship had grown so combative that Ervil gathered several followers and split to form his own church, which he named the Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God. They really like the long-ass names. They do. That's a mouthful. Imagine the letterhead. He incorporated the church in San Diego, California. Oh, all right. However, the rifts between the brothers did not end there. So I'm assuming, let me interrupt you, I'm assuming they're not polygamous, so that's how they're starting these churches in the United States, since it's against federal law to be polygamous, at least openly. I think, you know, they're just incorporating the church within the U.S. because they're technically still U.S. citizens. But I don't oh, okay. think, you know, I don't think when they're applying for their, they're, they're like, oh, we're a polygamous church. I think they're just, you know, declare it Mormon or. It's a financial thing. or Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So technically both church, because now there's two separate LeBaron churches, right? Okay. Joel's church, it's incorporated in Utah. And then they also have a compound in Mexico. Right. For Ervil's church, it's both in San Diego and in Mexico. Okay. The rift between the brothers did not end there as there could be only one true prophet on earth at any given time, according to their religion. Uh-huh. So they both couldn't be claiming they were a prophet. One of the brothers would have to give up their claim to the throne. By this time, Ervil had 13 wives, many of whom had been underage at the time of their marriage, and it is estimated that at the time of his death, Ervil had upwards of 50 children. Jeez Louise. By 1972, Ervil began telling his followers that God had told him that Joel had to be punished for his refusal to accept Ervil as the true prophet. He claimed that God instructed him to kill Joel as a punishment for his blasphemous behavior. Wow, all right. And on August 20th, 1972, Ervil instructed two of his followers to sneak into Joel's compound and murder him in the name of God. The two followers did as Ervil instructed, and upon finding Joel, they severely beat him before shooting him to death. Wow, okay. Incredibly, the Mexican government eventually tried and convicted Ervil of ordering the murder of his brother. Really? But unfortunately, an appeals court later freed Ervil on a technicality. Many would later claim that the reversal of Ervil's conviction was actually due to a bribe Ervil paid to the Mexican officials. However, that's never been proven. Proven, okay. Although, would you be surprised? Not at all, unfortunately. Regardless of how it occurred, this would prove to be a horrible turn of fate, as Ervil's killing spree did not stop with his brother. Oh, boy. Following Ervil's release from prison, he seemed to grow even more bloodthirsty, claiming that anyone who disagreed with him or wished to leave the church must die in the name of God. (laughs) Following Joel's death, the leadership of his church fell to the youngest LeBaron brother, Verlin, with whom Ervil quickly began feuding as well, because he can't be prophet at the same time. That's right. He commanded several of his followers to once again raid the compound, find Verlin, and kill him as well. However, lucky for Verlin, he was not at the compound at the time of the raid and was actually visiting Nicaragua. Although the men couldn't locate Verlin, they decided to set the compound on fire. It was destroyed and two of Verlin's male followers died in the blaze. Okay. 
family, right? There's, oh, yeah. There's still family. Yeah. They're all, yeah, well, okay. and it's polygamous, so they're all, like, interwoven. Like they're all related. Yeah, somebody. like, they're yeah, okay. cousins and brothers-in-law and also real brothers. Wow. It's, like, a whole okay. thing. Okay. Imagine trying to get that family tree down. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. There is actually a Wikipedia page about it, and whoever made the Wikipedia page did a really good job because they actually included a family tree, so you're able to kind of go on and see how everyone's related. Those lines must be jumping all over. It is confusing, and as we go through the story, more characters are going to come in, and you're going to be like, oh, that's their brother, but also his brother-in-law and also their cousin. Oh, wow. Gotcha. Okay. So following burning down Verlin's compound... Mm Mm-hmm. Ervil set his sights on other fundamentalist polygamous leaders in the area, believing that they too were committing a sin against God by not accepting him as their one true leader on earth. <laughs> in April of 1975, he ordered his followers to kill Bob Simmons, another polygamous leader who believed his goal on earth was to minister to native communities. Ervil ordered several of his followers to find Bob, and once they did, they shot him at close range with a shotgun. So he's just racking up murders. Wow. Two years later, in 1977, Ervil also ordered the murder of Rulin C. Allred, the then leader of his family's old church, the Apostolic United Brethren. Ervil ordered one of his wives, Rena Chenoweth, and his stepdaughter, Ramona Marston, to travel to Utah. There, the two women dressed in wigs and sunglasses and went to visit Alfred in his office. Once inside, the two women whipped out handguns and opened fire, shooting Alfred to death. Ervil later claimed he'd only killed Rulin in hopes that his brother Verlin would show up at the funeral, giving his followers the opportunity to murder him as well. Damn. So basically, he had this guy killed just as a way to... Like for bait. Yeah, for bait. Damn. He's cold-blooded, man. He is. Eventually, the two women were identified and arrested for the murders. However, incredibly, both denied involvement and were found not guilty at trial. Really? Years later, after leaving the church, Ervil's former wife, Raina, wrote a memoir, and within the book, she confesses to the murder. Wow, okay. Despite this confession, Raina can't be retried due to the law of double jeopardy. Double jeopardy, that's right. There are believed to be a number of reasons why Rena was acquitted, including how convincingly she lied at trial, the fact that she was pregnant throughout the trial, which most likely garnered sympathy from the jurors, right, and the fact that it had been difficult for witnesses to definitely identify Rena and her accomplice because they'd worn disguises. Right. Many jurors also admitted later that they'd felt intimidated by the Lambs of God Church, as many members attended the trial and would stare at the jury menacingly. (laughs) Which I don't blame them. As much as this guy's killing, I'd be scared too. Yeah, they're racking up up kills. And and they clearly don't give a shit, like, about getting caught or nothing. Right. Rena had grown up within the church and was forced to marry Ervil at only 16 years old. Ervil had wanted to marry Rena as she was one of the prettiest of the followers. Oh, imagine that. And she was how old? 16? 16. When he proposed to her, he informed her that if she did not accept the proposal, she would spend all of eternity in hell. As she had been brainwashed from a young age to believe that Ervil was God's representative on Earth, she believed him, so she had no choice but to accept the proposal. Okay. Lucky girl. Yeah. Not. 
Well, at least she ended up getting out eventually. Right, okay. Well. Following the release of Rena's book, the Allred family sued her in civil court for the wrongful death of Rulin Allred. Rena was found guilty and ordered to pay the family $52 million, but the family never received a dime. I was going to say, did she have $52 million? Or any money? I guess not. However, this would not be Rena's only time murdering for Ervil. As prior to her trial, Ramona Marston, who she'd committed the murder with, remember, that was her, mm-hmm. yeah. technically her... Yeah, her accomplice. Yeah. Well, and it was Ervil's stepdaughter. Okay. She mysteriously went missing, and although her body was never found, it's suspected that Rena assisted in that murder as well. Right, shut her up or... No one really knows for sure. No one knows. But yeah. that's what people guess, that there was some sort of... Okay. In 1977, Ervil went on trial for his involvement in Rulin's murder. He was actually found guilty and sentenced to life in a Utah state prison. Wow. Despite his incarceration, Ervil still ruled his church from prison and still managed to order other murders until his death in 1981. Damn. So Rena, remember, that's his 16-year-old wife. Mm -hmm. So at the time of the murder, she was 20. Okay. Rena's brother, Mark and Dwayne Chenoweth, and then Ramona's brother, Eddie Marston, were also known to assist Ervil with a number of his killings. Hmm. In 1974, before Ervil's arrest, he ordered the three men to go to a local Mexican village to try and convert the locals to Ervil's church. However, when the locals made it clear that they were not interested, the three men burned the village to the ground. Two people died and dozens were wounded. Wow. Some ruthless people. Jeez. This guy's a piece of work. Also in 1977, Ervil ordered the men to murder his young, pregnant stepdaughter, Rebecca Chenoweth, who had simply annoyed Ervil by complaining too much. Oh, boy. So he basically said she complains too much, killer. Yeah, okay. And she was pregnant. Dwayne Chenoweth, Rebecca's brother-in-law, and Mark Martston drove Rebecca to Dallas. Once they arrived, Mark strangled Rebecca to death, and her body has never been recovered. Okay. Wow. Incredibly, after Ervil's arrest, all three men left the church. So all three of those men who had done all those things, as soon as Ervil got arrested, they were like, we're out. How do we know they did those, though? Like... Because various members have come forward that have escaped and gone and basically claimed that that's what occurred. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So in 1988, so that's seven years after Ervil died in prison, all three of those men were mysteriously gunned down in Dallas, Texas. Their murders were never solved, but obviously the cult was suspected to be involved. Right. Keeping their secrets secret. So even after Ervil dies, they're still committing murders and violence throughout. Wow. Unsurprisingly, after Ervil's arrest, he began to lose his hold over many of the followers because most of them were all the way in Mexico and he was in prison in Utah. Right. So at that time, several of his followers fled from the church because I guess up to that point, they were too scared to leave. But now that he was gone, they're like, now's my chance. Right. Door opened up. Most of those who fled were either mysteriously murdered or disappeared altogether and have never been found. Holy shit. However, Reyna was not the only one of Ervil's wives who'd been directed to kill. 
On June 16, 1975, 35-year-old Vonda White, who was seven months pregnant at the time, was ordered by her husband to kill another church member, Dean Vest, who'd become openly disenfranchised with Ervil's leadership. He told Vonda that he feared Dean would leave the cult and leak information to the FBI. Hmm. Vonda called Dean to her home in National City, California, and requested he help her repair a washing machine. When Dean leaned down to examine the washing machine, Vonda shot Dean twice in the back and once in the head, killing him. Vonda then calmly called police and told them she'd been upstairs with her five kids when she heard gunshots downstairs. So all of her kids were home when she did this. Holy crap. However, police did not buy her story and she was arrested. However, she was let out on bond and she promptly went on the run. She was eventually captured three years later in Colorado. She was convicted of first-degree murder and was sentenced to seven years to life in prison with the possibility of parole. In 2007, Vonda applied for parole for the 19th time, and it was granted. Wow. The parole board concluded that Vonda's actions were a result of, quote, significant stress and reported that they believed Vonda had been, quote, a victim of intimate partner violence. Gary Rempel, a deputy district attorney who'd worked on the case back in 1978, adamantly opposed Vonda's release, in part because he had personally been a victim of the cult himself, as they had put him on a hit list following Vonda's second arrest. So he was on the cult hit list. Wow, okay. He told the Salt Lake Tribune, quote, if she goes out, it's going to give a lot of comfort to the people who are still in the cult. They're still doing what they do, and I'm still on the hit list. Okay. In a strange turn of events, although the parole board approved Vonda's release, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger reversed the board's decision, believing that the gravity of her crime far outweighed any achievements she may have accomplished while in prison. However, two years later, in 2009, Vonda was finally released, so she's no longer in prison. Okay. Her family claims she has no interest in rejoining the church. So supposedly she's just living a quiet life with her family. I mean, she's obviously a lot older now. Right, right. Okay. Following Ervil's death, the cult became more secretive and stayed just as violent. Any member who left still continued to be hunted down and killed, including small children. It is widely known that children as young as eight have been murdered by the cult. Wow. Do we know who took over? Do we know who took over when? No. Okay. It's not clear. Okay. The only members who seemed to survive were those who sought police and FBI protection in exchange for their cooperation. So some of these church members were put into witness protection programs to save them from getting killed. That's how bad it is. Right. Unreal. Since its inception, it is suspected that the church and its followers have been involved in over 50 murders, bank robberies, drug dealings, and even gun trafficking. Wow, okay. In the 80s, however, the religious sect encountered a new problem. Mexican cartels who had taken up residence around the group's complex, specifically El Chapo, and the well-known Sinaloa cartel. Sinaloa gang, yep. I was about to ask, did they have any uh, run-ins with the... Oh, uh... yeah. Okay, all right. The cartel had formulated many drug-dealing routes near the religious colony. The group has claimed that they have an understanding with the cartel. If they don't bother them, the cartel doesn't bother them either. 
However, many suspected that somewhere along the line, the church and the cartel had come to an agreement. Mm -hmm. According to author Sally Denton, quote, I think it's naive of the public to believe they were just friendly neighbors saying hello at Sicario checkpoints. I don't believe you live with some of the most violent people in the world without having accommodations. I think they were helping with guns. So she thinks they basically cut a deal. Hey, we'll traffic guns for you. Right. Right. If you just like let us chill. However, once El Chapo was arrested and sentenced to life in prison in the U.S., all hell broke loose. Once El Chapo was gone from the area, rival groups quickly moved in, attempting to take the territory from the Sinaloa drug empire. Violence erupted all around the Mormon settlement, and on November 12, 2019, so this is recently, mm-hmm. it all came to a head when three cars traveled down a deserted 12-mile road. The cars were filled with Mormon women and children traveling between two Mormon settlements. I heard about this. But this road was also a known drug cartel route. Suddenly, a hundred Sicarios descended on the vehicles and began firing upon them. They then set several of the cars on fire. Nine mothers and children were killed, and several of them were burned alive within the vehicles. Mm-hmm. I remember when that, that was made public. It was horrible. Outcry was horrible, yeah. To this day, it's unclear why the Sicarios attacked the women and children. Some believe it was simply a case of mistaken identity and the vehicles were mistaken for those of a rival drug cartel. Others, however, believe that the hit was intentional as the Mormons and the cartels had been arguing over water rights within the area. Author Sally Denton stated, quote, I think somebody owed somebody something. I think there was a great big message, not to the women and children, but to their husbands and fathers. It was not a case of mistaken identity. They were targeted. It was about money. Somebody reneged on some kind of deal. Do we know that the women and children that were killed, were they part of this cult? Yes. Or they were part of the... Yes. Okay. All right. Although the Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God is still up and running today, it is unclear who is the church's new reigning prophet. However, it is clear who the real victims in this story are, according to author Sally Denton who, as I said, was a former fundamentalist Mormon. Mm-hmm. She stated, quote, In the end, I come back to the real victims of this story, the women and children, the ones who always seem to be expendable in these stories. So uh, that's the story of uh, the LeBaron family. Yeah, because I remember when that, uh, when that came out, the three van full of people or whatever, it wasn't even made known that they were a part. Like they said that they were from a Mormon church, but it wasn't, I guess, publicized or maybe they didn't know that they were part of this ongoing culture, you know, within that within that church. So, FBI is very well aware of this church. Mm-hmm. Tons of the members have been on the FBI's most wanted list at one point or another. Oh wow! Okay. I think that's why the leaders are always so afraid of people leaving because they don't want them to go to the FBI. But crazy that they still to this day don't know and they're not entirely sure how many people they've killed because so many people like there's probably so many people they don't even know are missing you know what i mean they probably do they even know like how many people are within the church or part of the church i think it kind of fluctuates but they said that it's around 30 families but remember these are polygamous families so right so if you think about it each even if each person has three kids that's a lot of people right do we know how they make their money or 
I mean, I know they probably had a deal with uh, with El Chapo with the guns and stuff, but farming. They do farming in Mexico, oh, so okay. I think they make money. Okay. They try to claim like, "Oh, we're just farming Mormons." Farmers, right? We're not doing anything sketchy over here. Don't look at us. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Wow. They also, it supposedly they've robbed banks and shit too. So I mean, there's a moneymaker. Where in Mexico? Or I'm here? not really sure. I I tried to kind of okay. Google it, but I don't know. Maybe this is just this is just my opinion. I kind of almost feel like the FBI tries not to release too much information because they don't want people knowing what's going on, so that they, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, they're trying to manage the case or manage public outcry. I or... think they kind of want some secrecy because it's easier for them to investigate if people, you know, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was a crazy cult. So we do have one question. All right. So this question is from Carol Ann. Hello, Carol Ann. It's a really good question. Okay. It's kind of a long one. So she said, forgive me if I missed this information somewhere along the way, but how did the podcast originate? Was it your idea or did someone suggest you should do it? How long between the first thought to committing to start the podcast and then how long before your first episode? Was it a daughter-father project from the beginning, or did you invite your dad to join in, or did you have to twist his arm or something in between? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was good. So we've kind of tu- we've yeah. kind of touched on some of this, I think, in the past. Yeah. It was definitely more my idea, I would say. It was absolutely your idea, for sure. I really wasn't into, like, I was into more of, like, audiobooks and stuff like that. Like, I wasn't really into the podcast thing. And then, so I'll let you take it from here. You had kind of you know, brought up the subject of, because you had been listening to podcasts and true crime and stuff like that. So yeah, I was telling my parents about how I had always wanted to kind of start a true crime podcast. And I don't remember how it really came to be that you, that we were like, we should do one together. I think it was because I was telling him that that was something that I was frustrated with when I would listen to my own true crime podcast that I would listen to is that there was a lot of questions I would have while listening and there was no, at least none of the podcasts that I was listening to, there was no credible person on there to kind of give a law enforcement perspective. Right, right. That's exactly what I remember you saying that and I remember that kind of like taking my interest. Yeah, and so I basically said we should start one where, because, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the stories and you can give an actual perspective from right. an investigator who actually knows what they're talking about because... That's something I would get annoyed by when I would listen to, you know, other podcasts would be, you know, they'd be speculating all this kind of wild stuff. And I'd be like, yeah, but you don't really know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Right. I would listen to like there was um, a a radio back when I listened to the radio, a morning show, and they would have like these questions like they would look at live TV and see that there's a police something going on here. And why are they doing that? And people would call in not knowing and just talking shit. And I was like. If only I could call and tell them. This is why. Yeah, but that's why I think it kind of piqued my interest. And I had no idea about how to do a podcast or, I mean, I don't think you did either. Nope. At that point. Self-taught. And we we did talk about it for, I would say, what, several months or so before we really pulled the trigger. Yeah, I want to say we, I actually remember this because when we first talked about it, it was when we were in that Airbnb in Vegas before you moved there. Okay. And so that was January of... 2021 maybe was it 21 or 20 it might have been 20 probably 21 anyway finally i said come on let's you know let's do it so we kind of got the equipment and then we recorded our first two episodes actually when i was in florida visiting 
Right. And so we kind of compiled a few episodes before we released the first one. Yeah. And yeah, and then here we are. Here we are. And uh, how many episodes? I don't even how many episodes we're on. This, this is... episode is number 68. 68. So there you go. So. Yeah. We're going to um, grow it even further, hopefully. Got some ideas for the new year. Yeah, we've got some ideas that we're working on. So stay tuned and uh, we'll probably be announcing them shortly. But that was a good question. But yeah, that's basically. And then we, we have talked about, I think when you posted the picture, I had the um, the sticker, can't make this shit up on my desk. Yeah. So that's how we came up with the name. Yeah. The inspiration for the name, because you know it, it's something that me and my partners would say all that, like we would go across, come across another case or get some type of information or something that we would just like look at each other and like, you can't make this shit up. Like it, it has to naturally occur. Like, and so we just kind of like, Hey, that sounds like a good idea for, because these stories are crazy. I mean, yeah. Even look at the story we just covered today. It's like, wow. Yeah. I can't believe there's a cult out there who's killed upwards of 50 people and they're still up and running. And they're still, right. And nobody like really knows who's running them now. And, and nobody knows even how know. many people they've really killed. Right, right. So can't make this shit up. It's like, it's just too shocking. Nothing surprises me anymore, you know, but I am still shocked by certain things like just that, you know, sometimes the gravity of, you know, the crime or it's just like, but, you know, something new happens like, okay, yeah, it's just par for the course. It's like, just, it's going to continue to happen. So, well, if you guys will give us a review, that would be very helpful. Also, if you guys will share us, that's how we get more listeners. I feel like majority of the, I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me and be like, oh, you know, my friend told me to give you a listen or my sister or my, you know, whoever. Yeah. And it really, really helps us out. Also, if you ever share us on Instagram, make sure you add us in it or, you know, do the little mention sticker because we'd like to shout you out if you're shouting out us. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But if you'll just give us a review on whatever platform you listen on, that'd be great. That also helps us get new listeners. That's yeah, greatly appreciated. And it helps us grow the podcast and all of that. So helps keeping us going. Yeah. And also thank you, obviously, to everybody who has done it thus far. I know a lot of you have. So I really appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, we definitely appreciate the support. And we've said before, we're very, very thankful that you guys listen. And we're very glad that you all enjoy what we do. So. Hopefully we're going to do a little expanding in the new year and Yes, indeed. Make sure you uh stay tuned for some updates coming up soon. Yo yo. But until next week, bye. Bye. Come out of the closet, mama.
I never meant to hurt you. I never meant to make you cry, but tonight I'm cleaning up my closet. Oh, God. I freaking love Eminem. Anyway, sorry.